we focus this year on the Advent gift of peace. Each year we focus during the Advent season uh, on one of the four gifts of Advent, and peace is at a premium right now, um, as you guys were both reflecting on, and everybody who um, is awake understands if you live in the world. But peacemaking is different from peacekeeping. And it occurs to me that while unity is a, is a fashionable notion, especially this week each year in America, unity that's meaningful and lasting only happens when we choose to be peacemakers. And so I just want to tell you how proud I am of you and grateful for this community, for this church being an expression um, and a beacon of Jesus' peace and of unity in our city and in our world at a time when, um, when the wind blows strong in the opposite direction. And our choosing to follow Jesus' example and fulfill his prayer for us in John 17, that we would be one against odds, against culture forces, and against the human condition that fears and um, opposes and then cloisters with our like kind. Being young and old and rich and poor and brown and black and white and urban, suburban and Democrat and Republican and single and married and kids and no kids and cool and uncool and minis and minivans and Highland and Highlands Ranch and every other spectrum that divides people in our metro region in one family, loving one another and loving Jesus, shows this city uh, what peace looks like. And I'm so grateful for you all. Hey, it is awakening season, and so we start today. Um, thank you for those brave souls who um, endured minus eight degree temperatures to come and seek the Lord this morning. Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday, each of the next two weeks from seven to eight is awakening. And so the idea there is to come together and create an opportunity to carve out space and time and come to the Lord together, creating a discipline. Call it a New Year's resolution with teeth because the Holy Spirit is working in you, drawing near to Jesus and Jesus is responding. And so God's grace is compelling us. What we want to do is not add another religious burden or another task or duty on your schedule, but create a space and a time when we can come together in order to practice and learn from our rabbi, from our master, as we answer his call to be his disciples, what it looks like to come away and get alone and draw near to him. That's what awakening is for. It's seven to eight Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday, starting this week right here in the garage. And I hope to see a bunch of you there and just seek God and have a simple time in his presence together. Sound good? All right. Well, Father, we give you this time. We give you our focused attention and we quiet ourselves, Holy Spirit, and ask you to come. And none of our words we recognize mean anything, but your word is eternal. So would you speak to us through it and transform us? into your image for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, of all the Denver tropes of which we celebrated some on Christmas Eve with the 12 days of Denver Christmas, thank you, Tyler, for taking that crazy uh, idea and making it actually happen. Um, of all the Denver tropes, I think none is funnier to me than the gearheads and the casuals kind of in a cold war of unspoken passive-aggressive tension. 
both live in Denver, right? You've got the gearheads that, you know, um, have, have lived here for a long time and drive a, a late 90s Subaru and have rack attachments that vastly exceed the cost of the value of the car um, and, and kind of condescend to the casuals who, who moved here from a big city a few years ago and, um, you know, live in a, in a gentrifying neighborhood and have all the best gear, but don't use it right. I was in the park this summer walking my dog. We live close to Washington Park, and I overheard um, one of the former crowd talking about, with his friend, about a group of the latter crowd, evidently, uh, and their Yeti coolers. You know, all of us back in 2019 went and bought stupidly overpriced coolers um, for some reason and have them and want to use them. And, and so they were using them to like keep their beer cool while playing volleyball for an hour and a half in the park, and, which is fine. They work for that purpose. So does an igloo for 25 bucks at Walmart. But the Yeti cooler is designed to keep like a whole elk frozen for 27 years. And these guys knew it. And they're like scoffing at their, at their overpriced cooler, which they probably own as well, but they're not using it right. And so I, I was kind of sitting close enough to listen into the, the eavesdrop in the conversation because it was so instructive and humorous. And they were basically talking about how, you know, they carve up animals whole and stick them blood and all into the Yeti cooler, which they then strap on top of their, you know, 2003 Land Cruiser with the snorkel and the, the stretchers and all the attachments um, for all the broken backs that they undoubtedly endure while um, actually using their gear. And they strap the thing on and then it plunges into a sinkhole upside down and gets all muddy, but the, the elk stays frozen and mud free and how they're just using it to keep beer cool in the park. And there goes the planet. This is what Denver is now. Hilarious and so telling. Do you know the trope I'm talking about? Am I the only one that finds amusement in this? Or maybe for you, it's the person that drives their, rides their $7,000 uh, carbon full suspension mountain bike down the street to a coffee shop and, and then locks it up in front. Um, you're like, that's, you're not using it right. That's not what it's for. You're like the person that has the, the one tens on the, you know, on the groomers and you're like, come on, man. It's just like... Is it because of the cool artwork on the Icelandics? Whatever it is, whatever lane in which you condescend, just admit that you do it. Either this room divides roughly in half, the ones that do the condescending and the ones that unwittingly are getting condescended to and couldn't care less because they could buy their skis and yours twice. There's kind of both of us. That's Denver, right? I mean, someone's got to pay 3000 a month in rent. I don't know who it is, but it's probably the guy using the one tens on the groomers. It's, I think maybe heaven and its beings, the, I don't know who all lives there, the, the seraphim, the perpetually bowing elders around the throne, angels, Jesus, maybe the saints that went before us, depending on your theology of how awake and alert they are. I think they all look at us that way. I think they're like, oh man, they have it, but, and they kind of know it, but they're not using it right. Because... We have the best gear you could possibly imagine living in the garage of our souls. And our premise for this month is that we're made to use it. We're made for this intimate communion, this deep perpetual fellowship with the God of the universe, our creator. But we have to choose it. He won't force it. 
He will not foist himself upon us. James chapter four, as we read last week, reads, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James, Jesus' brother, withholds nothing. He pulls no punches, and he says, in effect, by implication, if we're not drawing near to God, he's not drawing near to us, it's because we're double-minded. And so our series, Draw Near. Nominal Christianity, it seems, has become normal Christianity. The art of discipleship, of hearing Jesus as a master and rabbi say, come and follow me and become my disciple. Learn from me. And so it is our aim over the next three years, we are reorienting, rebooting in a sense, and simplifying on this focus to understand what it means to be Jesus' disciple in three movements, to be with Jesus as any hearer of a first century rabbi saying that invitation would instinctively know to be with him and then to grow from that standpoint to become like him. And then as we grow to become like him, to learn to do the things that Jesus did. That's what it means as we see it to become his disciple. And that's what we're focused on. Each year for the next three years, we're going to take one of those as our primary focus. This year to be with Jesus. And then next year to become like Jesus. And then circling back to doing what Jesus did. Church famously skips to part two or perhaps three because they're actionable, right? You can sell it. To Become like Jesus snaps to a familiar grid, which is self-improvement. And everyone who lives on, you know, the halves side of the tracks in 21st century Denver wants to improve, Jesus or not. And so it's easy to Jesusify that impulse in us. And then to do what he did, to be more purposeful, to be more redemptive, more strategic with our life. These things align with forces that already operate within us. But how famously how subtly and easily and constantly we skip past being with our master for becoming like him and or for doing what he did. But Jesus said, we'll get to the end. And this is haunting to me in Matthew 7. And many will say, Lord, I did all this stuff that you did. And he didn't say, I'm going to contest you on the grounds that you didn't do it well. He said, I'm going to contest you on the grounds that I never knew you. To be with him is the indispensable foundation. So that's what we're focusing on this year. This series kicks that off. John chapter 15, Jesus put it this way, abide in me. Abide, make your abode. Remain, live, stay. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless... It abides in the middle vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him or her, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We're made to abide, to come to him and to stay with him. This is how we as humans thrive. This is how we were wired, created, and programmed to function optimally. This is where Jesus' abundant life begins. But Jesus made clear the choice is ours. Remember we talked about it on Christmas Eve. He said, 
behold, I stand at the door and knock. The door of what? The heart that he thought of, designed and created and set beating. I stand nonetheless at the door of your heart and knock. If you'll open up and invite me in, I'll come in and dine with you. Jesus desires for us to abide with him, but we have to choose it. And so the question that this asks logically is, if intimate friendship with God is possible, is available to us, why wouldn't we choose it? That's the question we're going to ask over the next three weeks and the answer this morning that I want to throw out to you as a sort of thesis. I'll pause it and then we'll look at the scriptures and see what they have to say. Perhaps one reason intimate friendship with God is available to us and we don't choose it is our compulsions. Our compulsions. And I'll tell you what I mean. Drawing near to God, abiding in Christ sounds great, but in this human flesh and in this fallen and broken world, it is running against the wind. And so what I want to ask is, what are some of the headwinds we face as we seek to abide in Christ, to draw near to God as he has invited us to do? I told you last week we're going to look at a case study from the Old Testament each week because the scriptures make clear if there's any ambiguity in the New Covenant era as to why this big, thick Old Testament, one reason, as 1 Corinthians 15 teaches, is that we have these stories as examples and warnings. Examples for us and warnings to us. So let's look at an example and a warning. We're going to look at the life of Solomon this morning, and we're going to cruise through a couple of chapters. I'm going to read a few highlights, but I'd like to invite you as your homework, if you'd like, through the course of this week, to read these two or three chapters of Solomon's life in full on your own. Second Chronicles 6, 7, 8, and 9 is where we'll be. So Read with me in 2 Chronicles 6, verse 13. The Bible tells us that having completed the temple, which God gave Solomon to build, though he put it in the heart of his father David to resource it, we're taught Solomon knelt in front of the entire community of Israel. He knelt in front of them and lifted his hands toward heaven and prayed, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in all of heaven and earth. You keep your covenant and show unfailing love to all who walk before you in wholehearted devotion. This looks every bit the part of a man who is genuinely seeking God, responding to his grace. He's drawing near to God, humbling himself, building the temple of God, kneeling before God and the people. Talks about wholehearted devotion to God. In chapter 7, after the prayer of Solomon that is recorded for the rest of chapter 6, the scriptures teach that when Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven and burned up the burnt offerings and the sacrifices that they had made and the glorious presence, listen, the glorious presence of God filled the temple. And so, In case we're wondering, was Solomon's devotion legitimate or was it for show? God's presence came. Remember what 
we read as the premise for this series in the book of James, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And so what we see is a man apparently drawing near to God, using his influence, his wealth, and his whole heart to do it. And then God drawing near to him such that the presence of God, whatever exactly that looked like, we can only guess the manifest presence of God came and filled the temple. We're told the priests were overwhelmed. They couldn't complete their duties and God leveled them with the goodness and pervasiveness of his presence in response to their drawing near, led by their king and man of God. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 8, we'll pick the story up here. Then it goes on to say, Solomon presented burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar he had built for him in front of the entry room of the temple. So he goes on after the novelty wears off and the dedication ceremony and the powerful presence of God manifests to fulfill the law that God had given them, obey him and lead the people in spirit and truth worship. Verse 15, Solomon, listen, did not deviate in any way from David's commands concerning the priests and the Levites and the treasures. So it seems, can we agree that he's off to a pretty legitimate start? Like Solomon is a guy of a lot of pomp and circumstances we see later in his life, but this seems to be wholehearted and sincere. So what happens? Well, he starts of a mind to seek God and to live in his presence, it seems clear. But powerful headwinds are gathering in the east. Read chapter 9 with me. When the queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame, she came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions. She arrived with a large group of attendants and a great caravan of camels loaded with spices, large quantities of gold and precious jewels. When she met with Solomon, she talked with him about everything she had in her mind. Solomon had answers for all her questions. Nothing was too hard for him to explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba realized how wise Solomon was, and when she saw the palace he had built, she was overwhelmed. She was also amazed at the food on his tables, the organization of his officials and their splendid clothing, the cupbearers and their robes and the burnt offerings Solomon made at the temple of the Lord. So she was amazed by things religious and secular, wholehearted devotion and some of the trappings of success that went on to become a snare to him. And she exclaimed to the king, everything I heard in my country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. So what we see is this man of wholehearted devotion is cultivating quite a reputation. And another dignitary comes and seems to subordinate herself to him and says, wow, you're twice as amazing as even we had heard you were. Favor, favor from God and then favor from other human beings comes to Solomon and it comes hard and fast and it becomes intoxicating. And it fuels a compulsion in Solomon to be more and do more and have more. And it's our compulsions that feed this false identity, this false self, whose identity is determined ever and always by more to be more, to have more, to do more. An insatiable thirst for more, more significance, more stuff, more influence, more reputation. 
And so begins the journey toward the double-minded, of a mind wholeheartedly to seek God. Now there is also a mind for the reputation among people. And that false self has no interest in finding a true identity in Christ. In his little book, The Way of the Heart, Henry Nouwen put it this way, and our core team read through this book together in the fall of last year, so this will be familiar to you all. Compulsive, he writes, is indeed the best adjective for the false self, for this false identity he's talking about that's propped up by gaining more and the good opinions of people which that achieves. Compulsive is indeed the best adjective for the false self. It points to the need for ongoing and increasing affirmation. Who am I? I am the one who is liked, praised, admired, or disliked, hated, or despised. When I am a, whether rather I am a pianist, a businessman, or a minister, what matters is that how I am perceived by my world. If being busy is a good thing, then I must be busy. If having money is a sign of real freedom, then I must claim my money. If knowing many people proves my importance, I will have to make the necessary contacts. The compulsion manifests itself in the lurking fear of failing and the steady urge to prevent this by gathering more, more of the same, more work, more money, more friends. So this thirst for affirmation, it seems, if you read between the lines, if you piece the text together and think, this was a guy, this actually happened. This thirst for affirmation seems to grip Solomon's heart, and it creates a powerful compulsion, a compulsion to be more, to have more, and to do more. Read on with me in 2 Chronicles, skip down to verse 17. The king made a huge throne next, decorated with ivory and overlaid with pure gold. We're told he made an elaborate, vast palace for himself and then another for his wife in another city. The throne had six steps with a footstool of gold. There were armrests on both sides of the seat, and the figure of a lion stood on each side of the throne. There were also 12 other lions, one standing on each end of the sixth step. Is there anything wrong with any of this? A throne or gold or lions or 12 lions or steps up to the... I mean, nothing intrinsically sinister about any of these things, but you'll start to see a pattern here. No other throne in all the world could be compared with this throne. So there was obviously uh, an accounting, a searching out of how big and expensive and elaborate were the other thrones. You know, as people like the Queen of Sheba come, in the course of conversation, I can imagine somebody asks her, what's your throne like? It's curious. And they're like, all right, this one goes to 11. Remember that? But is it the same? Well, no, it goes to 11. It's louder. Did none of you old heads see Spinal Tap? I am disappointed in you. All right, so they made the throne better than any other throne that's out there. All of King Solomon's drinking cups were solid gold, as were the utensils in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. That's the other palace. That's like the summer palace for his wife. They were not made of silver, for silver was considered worthless in Solomon's day. The king had a fleet of trading ships manned by sailors sent by Hiram. One of, 
Once, rather, every three years, the ships returned, loaded with gold, silver, ivory, apes. Yes, apes and peacocks. Because he's like, do any other kings have apes? I'm going to have apes. Because he can, which is cool. Is there anything wrong with apes? I mean, if I could have an ape, I don't know if I actually believe that. I think if I could have an ape, I probably wouldn't. Doesn't work as well in my like 2,400 square foot house. But it's cool nonetheless. So King Solomon became richer and wiser than any other king on earth. How do we know that? Somebody checked. Hey, just out of curiosity, what's your king's net worth? Got it. Kings from every nation came to consult him. And so you see the favor and the good opinion fueling this false self that's substantiated by the opinions of others, which in turn are fueled by being more, having more, and doing more. Sound familiar to anybody? First Kings 11, we see that ultimately the headwinds of compulsion overpower Solomon. And the story takes a sad turn. King Solomon, it says, loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, that was his main wife, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and another 300 concubines. So are those even wives? I mean, it would take you like half a decade just to have a date night with each one. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. So this thing goes down the road far enough that things that left to themselves individually are not wrong, but taken together, forming a pattern and fueling a compulsion ends up destroying him. So in addition to the thirst for more stuff, he needs more women and more marital intimacy, evidently. And Solomon goes full Wilt Chamberlain mode and has like a thousand wives and concubines and who knows how many, you know, beyond that. And then his heart, we're told, just turns away from the Lord. So here was a guy who was wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord at the start of his tenure, who's now turned away completely. We have these stories as examples and warnings. So what I want to know is, and this is rhetorical, does Solomon's life hold a mirror up to anyone? To our temptations? To our compulsions? To our false selves? His need to be more, to do more, and to have more I think holds a mirror up to all of our lives. If we're honest, this world, like it did in Solomon's day, this world feeds our compulsions. It fuels them. And our compulsions fight against abiding in Jesus. Not every one of us, perhaps, faces each of these compulsions. But I would suggest that there is not one of us who is immune to them. Perhaps it's to be more, to accomplish, to achieve, 
to be somebody, this insatiable thirst for significance that never is satisfied, no promotion, no influence, no fame is enough. Maybe it's to do more, to accomplish, to drive, to build, to forge, to pioneer, to go and learn and do, to achieve. Or maybe it's to have more, more wealth, more stuff, more status. Has anyone gotten far enough down that road to realize that it leads to nowhere but death? Our compulsions would rather we forsake God entirely, like it seems Solomon did. But they're willing to make their peace with our religion so long as it's be more, do more, have more religion. Our compulsions will co-opt our religion if we'll make it about being more. New year, new me, hashtag Jesus. And doing more. I'm going to achieve, I'm going to strive, I'm going to build, I'm going to gain, I'm going to amass, I'm going to change and have more. I'm going to make all this money for the kingdom, of course. As long as we'll snap to that perverse, false religion, our false self is happy to share space with nominal Christianity. What it won't share is our hearts. That's why so often we skip being with Jesus for becoming like him or a version of that that suits us and fits our culture. And then doing things that he did. Be more, do more, have more religion. That can coexist with the false self. But our compulsions will never allow us a life of abiding in Christ. We can't serve two masters. So what did Jesus do? Jesus had a journey that was somewhat similar to Solomon. Humble beginnings, born into great expectations. He had a meteoric rise from being Mary and Joseph's son, the carpenter. I mean, one village was like, yeah, Jesus, the carpenter's son, whatever. None of the rest of them did. None of the rest of them cared. Perhaps they didn't have social media yet, so none of the rest of them knew or really cared to know what Jesus had done during his minutia of the last 30 years. What they knew was he was delivering the goods. He was healing their sick grandmother. He was multiplying food for crying out loud. He was casting out demons, demonstrating spiritual and not just material authority. He was dazzling. So his year of obscurity, as scholars call it, quickly gave way to his year of popularity such that people came in hordes and droves. No one could get into the house. He had to get into a boat to create physical separation so as not to get squashed by the people. Jesus' rise was meteoric. 
How did it not go to his head? Remember the one story, did you ever read this, where they tried to make him king by force? Like, what even is that? How many people have you ever known? They're like, hey, we want you to be king. No, 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 no. Yes, you've got to be king for the good of the people. No, I couldn't possibly be rich, famous, and live in luxury. No, 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 no. Oh, we're going to force you to be king. We're going to make you live in riches and luxury. No, 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 no. That happened to no one ever except Jesus. He like literally grabbed the God override handle and disappeared and went through the crowd like Frodo when the ring landed on his finger. How did Jesus stay pure? How did he continue to abide with his father when he, the man, walked the earth and set an example for us? We read in Luke chapter four, early the next morning after one such overwhelming wave of popularity in response to a time of ministry, early the next morning, Jesus went out to an isolated place. The crowd searched everywhere for him. When they finally found him, they begged him all the more not to leave, to stay, to add another night to the tour. at least to give him little bracelets with squares like we did when we were 12 and write Jesus on each one. Luke chapter five, this wasn't a one-time thing. It wasn't just that he was exhausted and needed to recharge. We're told, no, this was his way. Jesus often did that confounded the people, even his own disciples. They found him one time and he had withdrawn to the wilderness for prayer or to a deserted or lonely place, as some of the translations say. And they're like, what the heck are you doing? Everybody's here for you. Didn't seem to matter. He continually withdrew. He made a pattern of it. He made a habit of it. Or you might say a discipline. What we see in Jesus is that, well, let me say it this way. What we see in Solomon contrasted with Jesus is that solitude kills our compulsions and teaches us how to abide in Jesus. Solomon continued to receive visitors and continued to just go where the people took him. He just rode the wave. I don't think he set out for the apes and the peacocks to turn his heart from God. Just one thing led to the next. But we see in Jesus that solitude kills our compulsions and teaches us how to abide. It's important to note that solitude, though there is value in rest, of course, isn't primarily about recharging our batteries or refreshing ourselves. When I step away from my endless search for significance, what happens is I have to face the reality that I'm not significant. That I'm a child of God. And I am restored in that place over time and discover that I am glorious as I abide in Christ. 
but not by any of the ways that I've been trying to make myself glorious. So Jesus is kind of like Nora Jones saying, come away with me. It's sort of trippy thinking of Jesus with that sultry alto voice. Doesn't really work, does it? Now in added solitude is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society. I think that's what Solomon was. And we continue to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. Solitude is the place where Christ remodels us in his own image and frees us from the victimizing compulsions of the world. Solitude is something that we just can't fit in to our life. It's not something which is possible to multitask. By definition, it is a single task. I have over the years tried every which way to operationalize my quiet time and make it fit in, sometimes by necessity, sometimes justifying it by my busy job or the small children needing to get to school or whatever. You know, I have put scriptures on three by five cards on the mirror to read them aloud and pray them while I'm brushing my teeth. I, ha- I bought before, you know, the app and everything, I bought the Bible on CD, the entire thing. It was like this massive CD wallet. Did anyone have that? And I would listen to the Bible. And, and there's value in that. Immersing in the scripture, that's another spiritual discipline. It's simply not the spiritual discipline of solitude. Now, I, I'm the better for it, for having listened to the word of God a lot, just hearing it and getting it in my mind. But while driving through rush hour traffic, listening and kind of praying and drinking coffee and returning text messages, be honest, you do. You shouldn't. You're a criminal if you do. My wife, my wife like mean stares you if that's you. She's like, there are kids in that car. Don't text while you're driving. But you do admit it. We can't do solitude that way. That's it. That's not solitude. It is a single tasking enterprise. So over the next few weeks, you know, normally you have a series with like a broad umbrella of an idea and then individual topics each week within it. And then like three applications and a poem or whatever per topic, which creates like what, 12, 15 application points per series. Let's be honest. How many of us do two of those if we're lucky? So what we're going to do instead is reverse that thing. We're going to basically spend six weeks saying the same thing and building toward one application. And hopefully um, the word of God will get in us. My words mean nothing. The word of God means everything. So we're going to try to stick to that. And we're going to build one application and then pull it all together in week six. That's the way this is going to go. So last week was an introduction, four weeks of building this thing, and then one week of pulling it together and talking about it. And maybe over the course of this year, we'll do it. What about that? Actually do it. So it's like this. Years, like four or five years ago, I, um, I got into um, Beachbody, as you can tell. <laughs> and uh, 
back. <laughs> They're like, but when you turn sideways, you disappear. Yes, I'm, I'm skinny. It's a, it's a skinny beach body. And so did anyone ever do the Sean T workouts like, like um, T25 or um, insanity? Indeed, insane. So the way Sean T, te- I love Sean T. I mean, he's like taught me a lot of it in life, but the way he teaches it is complex movements. I am very uncomplex movement friendly. I'm trapped in a long gangly body, each limb of which has a mind of its own and frequently cross in action. Uh, I'm clumsy, in other words. And so he, you know how he builds the, a complex movement? Like you do one thing like this. See, I still got it, Sean. And then you do that for a while and you're like, okay, I got that one. And then he adds this. Come on now. I'm feeling it. I'm going to feel it in the hamstrings tomorrow too. Right? Oh, that's not even the end though. You do this and then this, and then you do that for a while, then you add this, and that's when I start falling. Um, and then you do a lunge. He likes the lunges. He's like, use your core. That's what he says, right? So we're going to build a complex movement. Like Sean T, over the course of the next four weeks, five weeks, one discipline. Here's where it starts. You got to get alone. You got to find a time and a place to get alone. Inspired by daily, but without legalism. If you don't do it the next day, rather than like, oh, my religious uh, failure chart, you know, that doesn't ever last. That's a bad motivator. Just sense the, the, the heart of your savior saying, man, I missed you yesterday. Do you have time today? If you missed yesterday, don't think like, I got to double it up today to add up the total. Don't, you accountants, just chill on that thing. And just remember... I don't need, I just need to be with my savior. I just want to abide with him. He wants to abide with me. That's where I find who I really am. And that's where I find what it really means to live abundantly. And so it starts by just getting away, having some time in some place. Take 15 minutes to start. Be like, I'm gonna have two hours on the mountainside every morning. That's a recipe for no, you're not. Especially when it's minus eight. But start with 15 or 20 minutes. Maybe get up a little earlier. Maybe reorder your morning and find a place that you can be alone. I have my place on the couch with my coffee and my same blanket every morning. It's my routine, right? And get quiet and alone. Carve out that space and that time. Start there. That's this. Okay? Do that for a week. And the next week, we'll add another motion to it that's going to build toward one discipline a time and a place. And that's what awakening's for. That's what awakening's for, to help. I mean, could I do this without Shanti and without buying the Beachbody videos? Sure, but he makes it, he's a coach, right? So those of you who are, the, who are here this morning early, Pastor Daniel's a coach. Like Maggie was with our team helping us on Thursday. We had a, a, a silence and solitude retreat and just coaching us on how to do that. And lots of the things that you shared while we were doing Jesus yoga like came to my mind the next morning when I was sitting on the couch, phrases and, and postures of heart. And so why come together in order to learn how to be alone? You're like, oh, I just need to be alone. Well, yeah, if it were that simple, we would all do it. Um, come and learn from him. He says, come to me and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. So I learned from Maggie who gave her day to be with our staff and help us with this. 
Pastor Daniel and some of our team and elders are gonna be there in these mornings from seven to eight to help us create some structure and practice and discipline. And maybe after a couple weeks of doing it, uh, it'll become a routine. So that's what awakening's for. Seven to eight, Tuesday and Thursday morning. It's simple. You, don't, you can come as you are, bring your coffee. Uh, it's relaxed. And it's just gonna be training and practice in solitude. Sound good? All right, that's all I got. It's time to go. Stand up with me. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just pause now and give this time and this topic to you. Lord, we remember the words that you spoke with which we, we began. If we abide in you and your words abide in us, we will bear much fruit because apart from you, we can do nothing. So God, let this not be for those of us who hear your voice and respond. Let this not just be another New Year's resolution that we try to do out of our gritted teeth and the sweat of our brow, out of our willpower. Apart from you, Lord, we confess we can do nothing. Lord, help us to abide in you. Help your words to abide in us and remind us and call us back to you. Teach us in the midst of a frenetic, chaotic, multitasking world and life how to get alone. And would you meet us there? Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Bless my friends in this in Jesus' name. Amen.